You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Uh, Anna Maria? See? Have you seen the movie um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No. It is good? Oh, I gotta tell you, I love this film. It had passion and a plucky spirit, and, and the characters had integrity. Like when Leatherface went on that strict diet of human flesh, he had to cut out chicken and fish completely. Dave, I agree with you. I'll go a step further. Sure, Leatherface, he wore a mask made out of human skin and he hung people on meat hooks. But hey, we've all got quirks. I've got them. You've got them, Dave. That's what makes this character so, so compelling. Thumbs up from me. Same here. This is the movie that Rex Reed called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. This film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. This is the horror movie to end them all. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. Rated R. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian. Oh, my God. Let me finish, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, you think that, Anna Maria? God, it was really American. American, yes. It's, it's an American masterpiece. It's, it's, uh, talk about gutsy endings. The girl, the girl gets away and our hero Leatherface, he chainsaws his own legs. Two thumbs up. Make that four for gore. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to author Joseph Lanza, the author of many, many books, including The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the film that terrified a rattled nation, available now and highly recommended. I hope that you enjoy this talk that I had with Mr. Lanza. You've written so many books and of so many different topics, and I'm curious how you come to what you write about. Well, yeah, people ask me, why aren't you just writing about horror movies? Or why aren't you just writing about Muzak? Well, how can you do, how can you make a career out of that? I'm, I'm interested in lots of subjects, but they tend to veer mostly toward popular music and movies. I mean, not just horror movies, just, uh, movies that go to extremes. I mean, I did a whole book on Ken Russell. I did a book on Nicholas Rogue. Those are two British directors who are considered extremists when it comes to movie narrative. Um, I also wrote a book about the cruder Russ Colombo. I wrote a kind of a satirical history of the cocktail. Um, I, I think a common thread would be maybe I'm looking for a secular meaning in a world which is too preoccupied with mysticism. I don't know. I, I was, but I just have a lot of different intellectual interests, but they tend to veer toward either popular music or uh, movies. How did you decide to write about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I've always loved the film, and the movie has, has cropped up in conversations throughout my adult life. I remember I was teaching English for several years, as an English professor in college, and uh, I remember at the end of the semester, there'd always be something called Media Day, when you know the classes were officially over, but teachers would be able to bring in their favorite movies or their favorite media and share it with the class. And I remember telling my boss that it, that the class wanted to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I just wanted to okay it with her. And she said, no. And I thought that it was a very bigoted no. I thought that this, this woman had no 
sensitivity to my students, had no, probably never saw the movie, but it was a typical reaction to a lot of anti-horror movie people that they just don't like the unpleasantness of it, but they don't, they don't realize the, you know, the, the social messages embedded in the movies that a lot of these movies, even though they're very grisly, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think have a moral meaning in them if you look for it. I mean, they might not have it right there out in the open. But also, I remember years ago, uh, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre got re-released about 1980. And a, a good friend of mine that I grew up with, we had the same kindergarten teacher. We went to the same high school. We even went to the same college. Uh, she was visiting me in town in D.C. And she says, let's go see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I remember the first 10 minutes, she says, oh, this is boring. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you're familiar with the film, when Leatherface slams that steel door and that low music uh, thunders in, she got she was scared to death for the rest of the whole movie. She talked about how horrifying it was and how well done it was. So the movie's always cropped up as sort of a historical marker for me. And then I was I was sitting with an agent and we were trying to figure out of a book idea. And he talked about how he always liked the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And all of a sudden, bam! I said, "Well, let's do this." So I put together. Um, you know, a proposal or whatever, and finally, you know, I did it. I did it the way I envisioned it. I envisioned it not as just about the movie. I mean, there have been so many books about the movie by people who were involved in the movie. I mean, Gunnar Hansen, who plays the part of Leatherface, did a book on it, which I thought was a very good resource. I wanted to do a book that sees the movie as part of a larger framework, a larger, almost as if the movie is, is one part of a larger hologram uh, that reflected the times, that reflected the dread, the political changes, the social changes. A lot of things were happening in the summer of 1973, especially when they were making the movie, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the outcome of the Watergate hearings being, being one of them. So I wanted to present a movie as a different way of processing information. You're looking, I'm talking about the movie constantly, but I'm all, I, 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 I well, I, I start talking about Nixon. I start talking about Alice Cooper. I start talking about uh, the, 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 the Earth Day and the fears of population growth and the, the beginning of the environmental movement and, and the Vietnam statistics, all these things. And of course, the what you call the onset of what, for lack of a better term, the uh, serial killer culture, where serial murder became an academic subject around 1973, 1974. So all these things were going on, and they were relevant to the movie, and I wanted to make this a, a different way of looking at a film. The film is like a lens, seeing the different world that it was reflecting, and also even possibly... Um, instigating. That's what I really like about the book. The subtitle of the book is perfect. The film that terrified a rattled nation. And you portray that rattled nation and that perfect petri dish of what would lead to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre so well. You paint such a picture. Yeah, we played a lot with that subtitle because the word rattled in the past tense it's very important because the nation was already rattled. It's not as if suddenly 
the hippies came in the late 60s or other face came in, in the early 70s, we were already rattled. I mean, um, even in the early 60s, I mean, I don't know how far you go back, but, okay, people say we lost our innocence when Kennedy was assassinated in Dealey Plaza. Everyone remembers at the time uh, where he or she was when Kennedy was killed. But was somebody named Christopher Hitchens once asked, does anybody remember the time that Kennedy almost had us all killed? This was during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, this is something that we got through, but there was a chance that we might have had a nuclear war. We were at a terrible Cold War with the Soviet Union at the time, but we had been rattled already. And I think I begin the narration. Toby Hooper was at the University of Texas on the day that Charles Whitman went on top of the tower and started shooting people, one of the worst uh, mass murders in, in history. So we were already rattled at the time. I mean, there's always this, this argument that we, oh, we lost our innocence with the, with the birth of disco, or we lost our innocence with the birth of the hippies and, and the death of uh, doo-wop. No, we've never really been innocent. We've always been rattled. But I think the, well, I, I wanted to start with T Toby Hooper's experiences at the University of Texas during one of the worst mass murders in our history, uh, you know, the, 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 the deadly tower murders. So, yeah, it was a rattled nation already, but I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre just drew the terror up to number 11. What was your history with the movie? Did you see it when it first came out theatrically? It came out in, in the October of 1974. I didn't see it until a few years later. I didn't see it when it first came out. Strangely enough, I wasn't aware. I saw it in the late 70s, and then I saw it again in, in, the, in, in the early 80s when it got re-released, and it was only then that I started understanding what was going on. That when it got released in, in November of, of 74, a month after its official release, one of the most uh, outraged reactions was from San Francisco, which you wouldn't expect because it's considered such a liberal and such a kind of a avant-garde uh, city. But it showed at the Empire Theater, and there was a very outraged reaction from the public because it was a sneak preview. They weren't fully expecting what to see. They'd gone to see a movie called The Taking of Pelham 123, which, strangely enough, is more horrifying. I mean, it was about people being held hostage in a New York subway, something that could happen any day, any moment, I mean, <laughs> any subway system. I didn't see it when it first came out. I had heard about it. I had heard mostly negative reactions that it was just a plotless film full of nothing but violence. I was amazed that that's not the impression that I had of the film, that even though it doesn't tell you it's subtext or pretext outrightly, uh, you see a lot of hidden themes in it. Uh, that, you know, for instance, there was a movie that came out roughly around the same time called uh, uh, Soylent Green, people being ground up to eat other people that, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic world. Its subtext and its pretext was so much on its sleeve that it was preaching to you, whereas the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it just shows you a bad day in the life of these young people riding this van. But behind all that, there's a whole bunch of, of, of little hidden meanings about, about the oil crisis, about America's identity crisis, the American dream, whether how much of it you believe, how much of it you don't. It was really on the chopping block by the time the Texas Chainsaw Massacre got made and, and got released. Uh, you know, we had a president stepping down for the first time. Uh, just a lot of things were happening um, on both the left and the right. I mean, I, tr I really tried to do that. I didn't want to make this a political where I'm just attacking the left or I'm just attacking the right. The, 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 the slaps were coming from both sides. 
And uh, that's one of the controversies in the book. I might have not been saying some of the things that, that I should be saying about the Vietnam War. You know, it wasn't all uh, one-sided bad. I, it was, the, both sides were bad of the Vietnam War. I can't really say it was a happy ending at North Vietnam won. But it was a terrible war. It was just a terrible conflict that we didn't know how to end. And it was just it just it just brought down our spirits so much. How did you go about researching the book? So much of it was already out there, um, especially about the movie itself. And uh, the people that I could have interviewed had died. Toby Hooper had died. There was a guy named Kim Hankel who was just impossible to find. But I kept looking at past interviews, and he kept trashing the movie, and it was really turning me off. I said, well, what did you expect? This is the best thing you've ever done. I mean, he's done subsequent movies, which were good, but what did he want? Did he want, like, Steven Spielberg to make this movie? So I just didn't feel that he was approachable. Uh, Gunnar Hansen had passed away. Marilyn Burns, who played... um, you know, Sally had passed away. Uh, the guy who, Paul Partain, who had played the part of Franklin had passed away. So all, a lot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre people were gone. So what I did is I had a lot of literature already done. I mean, the, the Texas Monthly had done many articles by, uh, by different people involved with the movie. I, I, I mean, um, I got, perspectives from the editors. I got perspectives from the, the cinematographers, from the people who had to collect the dead dogs that they lined up in the, on the floor during the dinner scene to make the atmosphere feel more fetid. But a lot of my research was going just beyond the movie, looking back at the times, researching Nixon, researching the environmental movement, researching Alice Cooper, and and and, and the rise of of death metal that that was going on at the time, uh, researching um, some of of, of of the serial murders that were occurring at that time. There were a lot of them. You had the Zodiac murders that were going on on the West Coast primarily in the Bay Area, but the Bay Area was just this hotbed of bad vibes. You know, in the post-hippie era, you had the Zodiac murders, you had something called the Zebra murders, which uh, were these racially motivated murders, you know, that occurred between 73 and 74. You had the kidnapping of Patty Hearst with the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, So San Francisco became, even though it's far from Austin, it became like a satellite city to Austin, to Toby Hooper's Austin, because the two cities, the thing that put them together for me were was that there's a group that came out of Austin called um, the 13th Floor Elevators. They were among the first psychedelic groups from the 60s. And their lead singer uh, had this nervous breakdown, I think, and he headed over to San Francisco, and I guess he became addicted to heroin or something. I mean, it just seemed like that, that there was this, this, this little travel between Austin and also Houston and San Francisco that I found uh, kind of fascinating, that both cities considered themselves the avant-garde of the psychedelic era. A lot of people don't know that about Austin, but Austin was one of the focal points of psychedelic rock. So, yeah, a lot of my research, you know, I, I researched the movie. I watched the movie endlessly. I mean, I, you know, fast-forwarding, uh, freezing frames, but also a lot of other things that were happening that might not often have been directly tied. I mean, I can't give you positive proof that Toby Hooper ever met the famous atheist Madeline Mary O'Hare, but I can tell you that she was murdered Texas Chainsaw style and her 
dead body was in some type of a unmarked grave in Austin. So there were these strange coincidences going on with just death. Is there a God? Isn't there a God? All these things that happen. I mean, cemeteries are a big part of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. People often bury their dead in cemeteries for hope that they have some eternal rest somewhere. Some people don't agree with that. Some people think, no, we should just die and that's it, because who the heck wants to think about an afterlife? A movie is not just a movie, not something that you just talk about and talk about, you know, how much it costs, how much the production cost, or which studio took it over, which distributors, or which mafia people owned it at one point or whatever. A movie is something that individuals carry with them, it, especially a movie they like. They carry with them in their subconscious. It's part of their thinking. Uh, they sometimes use it as a metaphor. It becomes a way of they're being able to understand movies more. And I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is an American classic. It's right there with The Wizard of Oz. It's just an American classic. So I, I wanted to look at the movie as just not just about the actors and the production and the, the, the money, but you know, how did this, how did this um, apply to the, to the life of Madeline Murray O'Hare, who was, who was developing her atheist movement in Austin uh, from, from the mid-60s onward? How did this, how did this tie in with the, this whole strange death culture? In rock music, and, and with Alice Cooper, for instance, and, and, and the rise of, of heavy metal with uh, with Black Sabbath and whatever, and so um, a movie is more than just a movie. A, a movie does. Uh, one one person wrote a very a nice, wonderful, positive review of my book, and, and the person wrote, "No movie exists within a vacuum." I think that was wonderful. Now, some movies might exist more in a vacuum. Uh, Texas Chainsaw is not one of them. It's a film, and, you know, again, that, that English department boss who told me I couldn't show the movie to my uh, students was, was really very, um, I think, um, handicapped mentally. <laughs> she, she, she didn't understand the importance. She just had her own prejudices against the film. Oddly enough... I don't know if you know this or not, but horror movies have an appeal for both men and women now. It used to be considered more of a guy thing, and used to have a thing called chick flicks, which aren't as popular anymore. But I would every time I taught a class, I would have a raising of hands. Who who likes horror films? And uh, the the boys and the girls, pretty much even that they become a kind of a a, a cross gender um, interest now, and they become so popular now. Some are good, and some are not so good. I was really glad, too, that you covered uh, Elmer Wayne Henley and the Houston mass murders. Oh, boy, that was something else. And, I, you know, that was one thing. When I first saw the film, you know, when it opens, it's, it says that it, it's, it's dated August 18th, 1973. And I'm thinking, that's strange because uh, the Elmer Wayne Henley murders, the Candyman murders, happened around... They were announced to the media around August 8th, around the time that they wrapped the, the first the, uh, principal production of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Strangely, a few years before that, I think that the, the Manson murders occurred around then. I don't know, but that, that's, that's, I don't want to get too metaphysical with the coincidences. But I wonder why, why the coincidence with the, with the Candyman murders and the, all those young men being chopped up and murdered and raped and whatever terrible stories. Because it's, it seemed to have happened after they wrapped up, but no. Um, 
Tim Hankel had mentioned that one of the um, inspirations for the film was the Candyland murders. And I remember in his book, uh, Gunnar Hansen said, no, it's impossible because chronologically it didn't happen because we stopped uh, uh, filming on August 8th. But no, no, no. They did post-production. They did aftershots afterward. The beginning scenes where you see the grave, where you see that, that uh, you know, that desacralized body, and you see the snapshots of the body parts. It all happened afterwards, and it's so much to, to a T to the, to the description of the of the uh, of the Candyland murders that I, I can't I can only see that they knew of that and that they wanted to bring that in. I mean, if you at the there was a, the famous book about the Candyland murders that I'd read, which uh, really put it in the perspective. It was just amazing um, how much that they captured the horror of of of, uh, of those murders in those first few scenes of the movie. Uh, there's a book called The Man with the Candy, in fact, by a guy named Jack Olson, and uh, really sums up uh, the horror. But no, I think that uh, the movie, the movie's beginning shots were were done after they were they were they were done after the Candyman murders and the Coral Henley and the uh, Dean Coral stuff uh, was was known. So no, I think definitely that the Candyman's haunting that film. <laughs> Tell me about that sound. The sound that I associate with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. How was that made? The guy Wayne Bell was one of the sound men, and I think it was just using a regular saw against a glass. I think that was one of the effects. Um, I think I have a list of the book. Oh, that's one of the questions. It's, it's very specific, but uh, they were using all sorts of. But one of the, I think they were using a regular saw and just scraping it against a surface. It could have been a glass surface or a table. They were using a lot of found sounds. I know that they wanted to to approximate the sound of a slaughterhouse, of squealing of squealing animals about to die. So they they uh, how they got that actual they, they, you know the scraping of metal is something that is very prominent in in, in, in in the sounds. It doesn't really have music. The only music is, is is actual source music coming from a radio. You know the couple of eerie country songs. You know, uh, fool for a blonde or whatever. But no, I, I believe that Wayne Henley, one of the things he did was just, he just uh, scraped a saw against a hard surface. Tell me a little bit more about Alice Cooper, because I was picking up on how much you were referring to Cooper throughout the, the book. I mean, especially things like Dead Babies, I Love the Dead. Yeah, you know, Alice Cooper had various stages. It's funny because when Alice Cooper started, when he became first known in 1969, it was more like... It was this kind of this sexual adventure, like he, he would come on in women's clothing, and it was about this this kind of you know this pre you know uh, gay liberation kind of feeling that was going on, that traditional sex roles that I think the Woodstock generation reinforced this idea of Adam and Eve and nature. People started thinking that was a bunch of BS by the time that Alice Cooper started coming around. And what happened is Alice Cooper went from that to being the progenitor of Glitter to this more of a horror show where uh, by the time he was doing Dead Babies, he was taking baby dolls and chopping them up with hatchets. And then in, in, one, in one show, he would, hang, he, would, he would be hanged from, from, a, from a gallows. And then later, he was, he was, he was beheaded in a guillotine. So what it was was that... Um, 
I think people's sense of identity confusion was being interlarded with uh, 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 this interest in the ultraviolence. And uh, A Clockwork Orange became popular in the early 70s. That became uh, a big icon. And, and, and it was, you know, with American cinema. And I think, and Alice Cooper just reflected this, this growing sense of angst. I mean, um, there was a sense of sadness about Alice Cooper's shows. I mean, he, as, as a person, he always tried to impress upon interviewers that he wasn't really violent, which is true. But I, I think Alice Cooper began in, in a much more profound way all about just sexual confusion because he would come on with, tarantula eye makeup, and then he got more pushed into kind of a horror heavy metal thing. But either way you look at Alice Cooper, it reflected uh, a Leatherface world, because don't forget Leatherface has uh, uh, a couple of genders too. At one point, he, 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 he's, he's dressed as the matron of the house. And there's a scene that was taken out of the uh, the movie that you can see, I think, in one of the documentaries, where Leatherface takes a break from torturing Sally at the dinner table and puts on makeup and puts on, you know, like mommy makeup and, and lipstick and whatever and teases his hair. And I thought, you know, the violence that was occurring at the time and the questioning of sexual identity, not all of that was bad. The violence was bad, certainly. But the questioning of sexual identity, I thought, was kind of was a fascinating evolution in young people's thinking because I, I think the blue-jeaned, woodstock lumberjack type really got boring to people. So, you know, there's a bit of moral ambiguity here. There's some things that are fascinating about what Leatherface was. And, and one of the ideas about Leatherface, too, that I think Kim Hankel and Toby Hooper brought up was that, you know, Leatherface probably was, was a mentally challenged individual, and he thought that these people were invading his territory. He, that, that's just his way. In his mind, he thought these were invaders and he had to kill them because you never see Leatherface leave the house. I mean, in later incarnations, I think Leatherface, uh, you see him in a slaughterhouse or whatever, but he's pretty much stuck in the house in the first movie. So, uh, yeah, I would say that there's a bit of moral ambiguity. I'm not saying that, you know, and they were called the Slaughters, you know, the Leatherface family. They were supposed to be called the Slaughters. They don't mention their names in the script, at least in the final script. But I like to point out that in the scene where the the the, the young guy, the young the kids, uh, you know, drive their van into the uh, service station, you see um, it says W E Slaughter. It doesn't just say We Slaughter. There are actually periods. This W period, E period, and I think they meant them to be the Slaughter family. And later on, when Toby Hooper did a sequence, they became the Sawyer family, which, I don't know, I, I kind of like the Slaughter family more, but the Alice Cooper syndrome was, was a lot like the Leatherface syndrome. This, this idea of how much violence it terrifies us, but yet it fascinates us and it's all around us. You see it on the nightly news of the Vietnam statistics. You hear more and more news reports about mass murders than you ever did before. I mean, we always had mass murders, but they became like a culture. And it never stopped. I mean, it went on. You know, Ted Bundy, it went on in, into the, in, you know, into Jim Jones later in the, in the late 70s. But so, that, yeah, I think Alice Cooper was very much a part of that. And, you know, strangely, I think it was in the fall of 72, uh, while Alice Cooper was chopping baby dolls, all the Roth, uh, one of the Rothschilds was holding some kind of a masked ball. And so I think it was in France. And one of the, one of the, um, 
uh, decorations was a was a pile full of dead baby dolls. So I mean, it just seemed to seem to be been being this Leatherface Alice Cooper culture that was going on in various guises among the elite and among just regular uh, teenagers wanting uh, some thrills. I have to say, I laughed out loud when I was reading the book last night and came to a passage about a toilet paper shortage that uh, Johnny Carson helped. Um, Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yes, that was fantastic. Of all the shortages we have, there's a gasoline shortage. You know what else is disappearing from the supermarket shelves? Toilet paper. Ha ha ha, you can laugh now. There is an acute shortage of, of toilet paper in the good old United States. We've got to quit writing on it. But I want to tell you, it is serious. I just saw a commercial where... I know it's coming. Uh, where Mrs. Olson comes in with a shopping bag and the housewife says, forget the coffee, just give me the shopping bag. I want to tell you... If I had written that book this summer, I'd been able. But yeah, the toilet paper shortage—isn't it amazing? Like of all things, and, and Johnny Carson made a real joke about it, and people got upset with it or whatever. But yeah, there were all these. Uh, there was this language of scarcity that became very popular in the, in the really in the early seventies, where you had the scarcity of you know our oil, our dream of endless oil was being challenged. We were running out of our own domestic supply. We were starting to. Uh, uh, ruffle the feathers of OPEC because we were taking, you know, we, we had we, there was this Israeli uh, uh, Palestinian skirmish going on. And then finally, by the fall of 1973, we had the OPEC crisis, but we were already aiming toward that anyway. Uh, President Nixon was talking about scarcity, and there was a toilet paper shortage, and it, it, it made the Johnny Carson news. Paul Ehrlich, who wrote a famous book called The Population Bomb. I remember I was in high school and that book was shoved down so many people's minds that uh, Paul, Paul Ehrlich really believed that uh, within 10 years' time, so this would have to be by about 1980, that most of Amer- the world would be wiped out, not just America. I mean, he, he believed so much in this, and a lot of it just didn't come to pass. I mean, um, he uh, he was studying butterflies, I think. He was studying the, the mating uh, patterns of butterflies, but I think this is one example where the butterfly fact, I think he, he took a little too far. I mean, there was a reason to be concerned about overpopulation. There was a reason to be concerned about environment, but it got to be almost a way of wearing down the psyche of, of Western minds, American and uh, Western European minds, to a point where you had groups like the Club of Rome, and you had the, the Trilateral Commission, which uh, you might hear a lot of conspiracy theorists like to talk about. David Rockefeller was one of the people who put that together. That officially uh, corralled in the July of 1973, while Toby Hooper was down in Texas filming the, the movie. And, and there's this idea of telling the world that we have a scarcity, not only of toilet paper, but of hand sanitizer, everything. And this makes people more frightened and people more prone to want to see a big brother take care of things. And that, that is a big, this is the big, this is one of the big problems, I think, that started in the 70s and continued. Do we live in a world of nation states or are we going to have a more global governance? And global governance was one of the terms that I think the Club of Rome came out with. Also, there's a term called sustainability. Now, you must have heard that used. 
I don't think that was used before the 70s. I, I, I think it's one of those, it was one of, I call them mind worms, you know, or brain worm terms that become like very much social scientist terms to convince people that horrible things are going to happen unless we stop driving cars or whatever, whatever we do. But, um, I, but the, yeah, the toilet paper coincidence is amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm just terrified of other coincidences that might happen in the future. I always appreciate, too, just what a strange spiritual void the U.S. was uh, at that point. Just everybody looking for their guru, like losing faith in the church and, and then entering into like this kind of supernatural realm. Like even things that were kind of innocuous, like uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying, yeah. like became this whole thing of like we are looking for the next big thing. And it just became like this, you know, so the, the idea of cults and these things kind of fit into the early 70s. Yeah, and they blossomed in the early 70s, but you could say there's a spiritual void, but there was also a spiritual glut. I mean, there were more, there were more conservative Christians also, people like Hal Lindsey that were coming out with books like The Late Great Planet Earth, talking about this great apocalypse that was going to happen. Catholic groups were involved in a lot of a lot of um, some of the, some of the ecology speak. So in a way, I mean, um, I think the question of what makes a cult and what makes a religion became more relevant as, as the seventies went on. And you have a big division among the Christian communities, for instance. You have conservative Christians, you have liberal Christians, and that's where the, 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 the specter of abortion came in, because I did not want this book to be an anti-abortion book. I'm not really there. Um, and I know that, you know, Alice Cooper chopping baby dolls is not the same thing as a, as a woman, you know, ha- having an abortion in my mind anyway. I didn't want to uh, conflate the two. And my way of, of avoiding that was to show that in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed, uh, there were many conservative Baptists who were actually more pro-abortion or more lenient about abortion. They weren't anti-abortion. They were saying that, uh, uh, you know, to save the life of the mother or whatever. The, re- the truly anti-abortion movement or the, what they call the pro-life movement really came in the late 70s, early 80s with, with the Christians, with the moral majority and with Ronald Reagan. But at the time, many states were already passing liberalized abortion laws. And one of the biggest problems people had with Roe v. Wade was that all oh, was this big federal, federal sweep over things. But there were, there were, there were several states that were already doing various ways of, of, of making it so that women didn't have to go to back alleys or to use coat hangers. So that was a problem that I had, but I went back and, and then in 1973, the, even the conservative uh, perspective on abortion was much different from what it is today, which I, I found surprising. I mentioned in the book there was this famous uh, uh, Baptist, very um, conservative Baptist cleric who, who, who actually gave, um, uh, uh, you know, who, who said more or less that uh, he, he can't be completely against abortion the way it was in the past, that there are other factors to take into account. So I didn't want, I didn't want to tie in that. I think the, the, the idea of having abortion legal did feed into this way of reassessing what we considered human life, what, what, you know, where, where conception begins. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a controversy. Some people believe that conception begins right as soon as the egg and the, and the sperm meet. Some, some Baptists believe that it's when the baby draws its first life, uh, breath when it's born. So, the, uh, 
it goes into this controversy about life and death. What is death? Do we die? Do we live on? Uh, people, the, the, the leather, the slaughter family, for instance, Leatherface's family, they were, they were practicing religion. They seem to have been practicing a kind of voodoo. Now, where did these white people from the South get their voodoo from? You'd think that these white Southerners would just be practicing some kind of uh, Baptist religion, but you see nothing but voodoo hexes everywhere you go. So these people were dealing with death in their own strange way. And then Sally Hardesty, you know, she's goes down there with her friends to make sure that her grandfather's grave isn't desecrated during this strange desecration of graves going on. So the idea of what it is to be alive, the idea of what makes, you know, you get killed, do you live on, are you just a body afterward? Uh, these are very much Texas Chainsaw issues. Yeah, I was really glad that you brought up that uh, mark that the hitchhiker leaves on the van as well. That always seemed very strange to me, that very ritualistic mark. You don't really know what it represents. I mean, is it, is it, is it some type of a, of a nor, nor, Norse rune? I mean, it, it, it's sort of, it's what Toby Hooper does. My, my conception of both Toby Hooper and um, Kim Hankel is that they weren't particularly religious people. I think they saw horror as just being very real. It's just something that, everything that happens in Texas Chainsaw can really happen. It's similar to Psycho, uh, you know, which was based on, I guess, was supposed to be based on the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Dean killings. So, yeah, you know, I think Sally says it at one point. She said everything means something somehow. You can read meanings into things, but that's the problem with the Texas, not the problem, it's the challenge of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What does it mean? Um, these people, the Leatherface family, must see life after death because they preserve their bodies. They have, they have, uh, Grand, well, Grandpa is still alive, technically, but uh, he, he, but they have these bodies preserved upstairs. You don't know if it's the mother, if it's a, a wife. You don't really know that. They don't. And uh, there's another thing in the book which uh, people find most, uh, some people find most mysterious. Around the time of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you had this young boy who was um, trying to send radio messages that his car had turned over and that his dad was dead. His name was Larry, and uh, and people didn't quite know where he was speaking from, but he was talking about this absent father, and he was lost on his own in this, in this world. And I'm thinking, that's what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is largely about. Um, one of the things you ask yourself, you know, the, the, uh, the old man who says, look what your brother did to the door. Now, I always assumed that was the father, because only if, why would a, fa- a father would say that to his kid? What would your brother do to a door? I don't think another brother would say that. But yet sometimes Toby Hooper would say, oh, no, that was an older brother. But that question about the, fa- the presence of a father is already there. And then there's another subtle thing that I mentioned in the book. Um, when the youth take their van and they travel to the old Franklin home, and Franklin said his father owned it. But wouldn't it be the Hardesty home if his father owned it? So there was this question about paternity in the script, which I don't know was 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 um, intentional, but it seemed to have hit home with me. But it's this absence of 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 a guiding 
light. And I guess in tradition, the father figure is the guiding light. And of course, we got to go back to Richard Dixon. I, I don't know if anybody want to call him dad. That's not his uh, child, but it was it was the king. It was the leader of the country stepping down. It was the absence of a father figure, and I, and I thought that that it's not something that Toby Hooper, you know, because Nixon was still in office when they were making the movie. But in the aftermath of the film, you can see where the the absence of the old authority, the old pattern of what 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 was real and what was not was just fading away and so we were left with this new world and and some people decided to substitute fathers with cult leaders you know and, and or or rock stars i think don't forget that was when the rock star really became the rock star that was when arena rock took over what that more communal world of woodstock you know, where, uh, where Grace Slick and Paul Kantner and, uh, and Marty Ballin all share the s- same stage equally. But by the 70s, you had the star. You would have Robert Platt of Led Zeppelin singing. You know, you would have Ozzy Osbourne of, of Black Sabbath as the star. And in a way, that was another way of having a, some kind of a father figure. What it is, is you're thinking metaphorically, you're looking at how the movie can spawn different ways of seeing how the country had changed. Not always for the bad. I, you know, a lot of these were challenges to our traditional ways of thinking that maybe we needed to challenge, but some of them were pretty horrifying as well. So are you still teaching at the same time as you're writing? I don't teach anymore, no. I, um, I just find that the, the teaching atmosphere has gotten much too repressive. Uh, I think I don't even think I could show the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because people might find it misogynistic or something. I don't know. I just think that a lot of teachers are complaining that they can't really express themselves anymore. So I'm, I pretty much have just, um, I, I'm trying to concentrate more on writing. What's your next project? I'm actually working on another another book about easy listening music. In fact, uh, another you know when I say music, I don't just mean the, the the music that was coming out of elevators that the company piped through. I really uh, the general idea of what easy listening elevator background music was. You know, Ferranti and Teicher, Montavani, Andre Casalanas, Paul Moriart. That music really came to a fore during the psychedelic years of the late '60s, and that's what I talk about. I mean. You had Sergeant Pepper being done by, you know, people like uh, Percy Faith. You had Donovan songs being done. I mean, you had a whole new genus of music that was keeping the Tin Pan Alley spirit alive. And at the time, a lot of the old folks didn't realize that. But a lot of those stoned-out hippies were keeping the song um, tradition alive for a little bit longer. I don't think we have a song tradition much anymore, but you had real melodies still going on. I mean, songs like San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. Beautiful, beautiful melody. Done many times. It's, it's, it's a classic right there along with I Left My Heart in San Francisco. But that's what I'm working on now. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing my, my interest in easy listening. Chainsaw and easy listening, somehow there's a, there's a commonality there somewhere. It's about emotions and about how, how technology and how, the, how we relate to the world around us. And, you know, background music helps people emotionally or at least accompanies people's emotional tumults, whether they're in airports or in restaurants or trying to relax at home. And then horror films, of course, address the, the darker side of our emotional fears. You know, I guess elevator music tries to allay those fears and horror movies uh, exacerbate those fears. And yeah, before I leave, I should, I, I think the best of the Leatherface spinoffs, you know, there have been many 
I mean, there have been so many sequels that you can't lose track. But I, I liked the one that was done in, in, in 20, I think it came out in 2017. It was done in Bulgaria by a couple of young French guys. It was just called Leatherface. It gave a new backstory to Leatherface. I don't want to give too much away, but it made you look at Leatherface differently. He wasn't just some kind of a dumb-witted person. Maybe he was a different type of person. But that was actually my favorite of all the spinoffs of Leatherface, uh, next, next to the original, of course. I haven't seen that one. I'm a huge fan of the second movie myself. Oh, you like the Toby Hooper, uh, the Texas Chainsaw 2? Yeah, yeah, it's just so goofy. Yeah, he, well, that's the thing, he just, he kind of, he kind of goofed on it. There was, there was one that, uh, Hankel made called, um, what well, was released as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. It was with Renee Zellweger. It was released on video in 1997, but there was an original version that only had a limited showing in 1995, and it was called The Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Kim Hankel does, he direct, it's the only film he, I think he ever directed. And he, he tries to, he brings back a lot of Wayne Bell's sound effects that were taken out of the official release. But you can buy the, the original one, I think a shock video might have come out with it or something. There, there's a Blu-ray Nice 1080 version of it, but it's of the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation. But they, what they did is they interspliced Kim Hankel's original footage that he wanted. So you get a sense of what he, you know, you, you get the Kim Hank, uh, the, the Wayne Bell sound effects. And it's different. It's strange, but he brings in the Illuminati. <laughs> he brings in all these other crazy topics that I thought were, were wonderful. It's available through through uh, Shock Factory, Scream Factory, whatever it's called. You can get both versions, both the theatrical version, but the really good one is the, is the, is the longer Ted Han- uh, Kim Hankel version. But yeah, you can see where even Kim Hankel was looking beyond just the, the story itself and seeing the different meanings that it inspired when he was doing it. And of course, the, uh, the, uh, some of this was based on comets too. You know, you had these 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 these, these arrivals of comets that were happening. I think in, I think it was in '73 that the Cohotech comet was supposed to. Come. It did come, but we didn't see it. Toby Hooper did a film called Life Force. And, and, and it was based on the idea that Halley's Comet was going to be this big event, and blah, it was nothing. And then in 1997, around the time that uh, uh, Kim Hankel's Texas Chainsaw Massacre version came out, we did have the uh, Hale-Bopp Comet. And I do talk about the, the outgrowth of that with the Heaven's Gate cult and all that. Chainsaw just spawned a whole bunch of associations and its various incarnations. When it came out in 74 and when it was re-released in 1980, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I definitely will. That's my job. <laughs> yeah, but it's so important. I'm looking at a movie called, did you see a movie called Midsummer? Uh, yes. What did you think of it? I mean, I don't want to keep you on. I know you have. Um, I, I wasn't that big of a fan. It reminded me a lot of the remake of Wicker Man. Which, yeah, which, yeah, yeah, it reminds me of, of the original Wicker Man a lot because you see Maypole dancing and you actually hear, uh, you know, pagan music, but you don't get any of that in a remake of it. I mean, it, it takes place on, on Puget Sound, first of all. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think you see a Maypole dance in the movie. I was mostly thinking of, uh, Nick, Nick Cage in the bear costume and how they oh, the sew that costume. guy into the, yeah. the bear skin, the guy who looks a lot like Chris Pratt, but isn't Chris Pratt. Oh, 
Oh yeah, oh like the you know, the guy who plays the boyfriend in the movie. Now it's strange because now the director who did uh he's this young guy who did who did Midsummer. He also did that movie um um Hereditary, which I d I didn't like. Midsummer I found fascinating because uh, the director said that the boyfriend was the villain of the story and I thought he was the victim of the story. I I, I thought the woman, the young girl was evil. I thought from the beginning. I thought at the, at the very end when she had that smile, it's the smile of evil that she entered this dark cult. And I'm not even going to say it's a Swedish cult. I think this could have been her dream, her death dream or something, because I, I'm surprised that the Swedish council uh, did not sue this, uh, this film because uh, the, the Swedes have these midsummer festivals every year, and they're, they're supposed to be a lot of fun. Anybody can go to them. You just drink a lot of Akavit. But, I mean, I, 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 found, I, I looked at the Nicolas Cage movie, and I, just, I saw the actors laughing while they were making it. It was just, I just thought... It just didn't do a thing for me. I, I thought the bear costume. Don't forget, he's wearing his bear costume as part of the camouflage. Right. Oh yeah. But in in Midsummer, they actually dressed him as a bear. They put him in the body of a bear. They could have been part of those horrible um, pagan rituals that the, the the Vikings had. You know, the Vikings were horrible. They, you know, that you know that one character who had his lungs pulled out. It's called it's called the the blood eagle. The, the Vikings were terrifying. I don't know if they were any better when they converted to Christianity, but the Vikings were really brutal people. So a lot of this came maybe from the nightmares of this one girl. Maybe this wasn't really happening. I mean, if you ever get a chance to look at the movie again, there's this one scene when one of the one of the girls, you know, with the long gown says, "Oh, the kids are going to watch Austin Powers now." And I'm thinking, where the hell are they going to watch Austin Powers? There's no running electricity in the place. <laughs> So a lot of this, I think I think a lot of the movie is actually a dream, her dream. But at the very end, I I don't I I felt sorry for the poor guy. I mean, I'm not saying he was the smartest guy on in the planet, but I felt that he was the victim. I felt that he was the the the, uh, the scapegoat. He was the I guess the sacrificial Christian, for lack of a better term. I don't I don't know what was going on, but um, I liked. It. I thought I I I wish the movie would have been a little more clear. And I wonder if I'm reading more into the movie than the director thought. But at least the movie is made in a way that makes you think. Which I can't say a lot about a lot of movies, but if you ever get a chance to see it again, there's a director's cut which I didn't like because it has this. I was trying to tie in some Nazi theme, which I think is ridiculous. The Swedes had nothing to do. I mean, that's Germany. You know, that was 1930s. This is Sweden. You know, I mean, you can't a, a bunch of blondes together that does not the Third Reich make. You know, I mean, there is something called North, Northern Italy, Northern Italy, Northern Europe. Well, anyway, um, I could talk to you forever, but anyway, I hope you all, I hope you get some co coherence out of this, but it's important. Movies are more than what we, th you know, it's not just something, oh, I saw that. You know, I saw, oh yeah, I saw that, I saw that movie, Hereditary. Oh yeah, yeah, that was okay, yeah. The acting was good, yeah. It didn't win an Oscar though, you know, that's what you get for most movie watchers these days, bro. I'd like to take the movies home and good ones. I mean, ones worth thinking about. Okay, well, Michael, thanks for your interest, and in, I'm, I'm, I take it you enjoyed the book, and I'm glad. I wanted to reach out to people like you. Mr. Lanza, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Well, thank you. I, I, the reading of it, I really I want to get people to look at films differently from just the film. What does the film connote? What does the film reflect? What does it inspire? What was it inspired from? These are important because films are not just some things that 
people put together, you know, technically that's true a lot of times, you know, you have a committee that, you know, it has to get green light money and all, but that doesn't matter. We take the films home with us. We are individuals who sit in the theaters or now in front of our Blu-ray screens and we absorb these movies and we dream about them. We think about them. We talk about them. If we get the chance, we relate them to daily life. They become part of our dreams, a part of our nightmares. And that's the importance of movies, not how much it made. Okay, well, thank you, Mike. I, I look forward to hearing this final product.
dance floor. This song is a square dance, but you can dance in a circle if you want to. It's called Texas Chainsaw Square Dance Massacre. Well, bow to your partner. Now bow to the rear. Girls in the center, guys go around, men leave the girls and go downtown. Go to a bar and drink 12 beers, run back quick and grab her ear. Girls, you show him they can't do that. Knee him in the balls and stomp on his hat. Texas Chainsaw Square Dance Massacre. You beat your meat, you got two left feet, but you're never gonna know till you ask her. Texas Chainsaw Square Dance Massacre. You smell like a skunk, you're a cracker when you're drunk. Now we're gonna go a little faster. Well, grab that girl and grab that guy Hit your partner with a shit pie Go see do and go see do Put on your cleats and stomp on her toe It hurts, don't it? I knew that it would Well, Alabama left and Alabama right and Go to Alabama and don't come back Time to find a new partner Kitchen tools will do. Ladies, bow to your partner. Now blindfold him. Turn on the blender, stick in his hand. Having fun now ain't grand. Pay no attention when he screams. So his face to a pair of jeans. Remember when he called you a liar? Take him to the stove and set him on fire. Next is Chainsaw Square Dance Massacre. You beat your meat, you got two left feet, but you're never gonna know till you ask her.